I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the King Culture Podcast. I'm Luke. Seth is here with me today. It's awesome to be together and to be able to talk today. Seth, I follow you on Twitter. I don't know if everyone uh, does who listens to this show. My guess is a lot of people are smarter than us, and they're not on Twitter. But you're on Twitter, and you recently uh, made a resolution, kind of in the style of Jonathan Edwards. Resolved, you said. Oh, yeah. Resolved. I thought, man, Seth woke up serious today. And he's making early morning Twitter Twitter resolutions. Unlike usual, I woke up serious. And so here's what you said. You said resolved to never use the word emotional pejoratively as an insult or as a tool of dismissiveness. To never use the word emotional pejoratively as an insult or as a tool of dismissiveness. And so, uh, yeah, let's talk about emotions. Yeah, so I think that the word emotional, like if I said, Luke, you're being emotional. What that functionally means is I'm telling you, I'm not taking what you're saying seriously. Yeah, sure. And it means like, it's a way of, so I, I would probably go, Oh, sorry. Oh, whoops. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I need, I need, you know, like that. Yeah. And how people then apologize for being emotional. Um, if someone, I hear people all the time as they're tearing up or being emotional, will say, I'm sorry. I'm being emotional. Yeah. As though being emotional is like, Saying the F word. Oops, sorry. Didn't know there are kids around. Right. Um, yeah. As an insult, as a way of saying, oh, yeah, well, he's emotional or she's emotional. Right. Uh, you know, I've heard one of our pastors on our staff who who is like questioned mm-hmm. because he was emotional like a female. Okay. In his early like aspirations to be a pastor. Hmm. So there you have both latent sexism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, sure. Right. Uh, he's not going to be good. He's like a female. And you also have judgment of emotionality. Mm. Oh, he's emotional like a female. So you have two layers there of of a problem. And uh, yeah, pejorative, you know, I, I think about how that's uh, a word with negative associations. Sure. Uh, like I think about like the word excessive or abundant. Both are describing the exact same thing. Right. One's pejorative, excessive. One is abundant. It's positive. Yeah. Like if I said, like, he has an excessive amount of ketchup on that cheeseburger. <laughs> yeah, he'd be like, he probably needs to scrape some off. Yeah, yeah. Or or if he said, like, what an abundant <laughs> use of ketchup, you'd be like, that's a lot, but it's not too much. You know, like, so, like, yeah, I could see myself sarcastically still turning it into an insult, but, yeah. but I, know, but I yeah. know what you mean. My point being is one of those is pejorative, one of those is yeah. neutral or positive. So I'm interested for you, Seth. I mean, no, nobody, I think, that knows you, or e- even if they know, like, a character of you, a caricature of you would not really be like, oh, Seth, he's really emotional. Yeah. And um, so, like, I, I think we would probably think that you'd be the kind of person who would be more like, emotions, man, you know? Yeah. And so is is that mostly a, an overcorrective just in your own heart of, like, hey, I have a, by personality, I'm prone to dismiss these things, and I need to work against that? Or is it commentary on the broader culture you see well i think uh, i think what is it i think there's uh, generally speaking um pe- personalities or people with greater or lesser sense of affect uh you know with the highs are a little higher lows are a little lower um i do think that a lot of the times we we learn from a young age that our highs are dangerous because they lead us to substantial disappointment and their lows are dangerous because we'll be told we're too much and people pull away from us 
And so um, most people with a lower than typical or low affect uh, probably have some work to do as far as like uncovering the wounding that has made them kind of feel like they're compressed. Yeah. Right. Trying to stay right in the middle. Um, I do think that's part of my ongoing work as a person developing is like, I want to, like, I remember reading in the Greek text in Greek class, my third year of seminary about how the emotions of Christ, that Christ was moved from his gut, you know, his gut wrenching compassion, hmm. these commands to weep with those who weep and, and rejoice with those who rejoice. That's describing highs and lows. Yeah. Biblical commands. And, uh, feeling like, Hmm, I can't, I'm not very great at either of those. Yeah. And so I do feel like that reveals to some degree, uh, an immaturity or an incompleteness or a need for progress. Mm. Uh, the capacity to be very excited and be deeply disappointable is part of rejoicing with those who rejoice. Yeah. And the capacity to move to tears based on other people's tears is part of imaging God as well. Right. He, that even like in John 11, you have Christ, move to tears when he sees the tears of other people. Mm-hmm. So it's not just what he feels is sad, but it's like even this capacity to be vicariously sad. Yeah. And so while I think I have a moderate to low affect, I don't, I don't want to baptize that as, Oh, it's just my personality. Therefore sure. there's no need for development. Yeah. I do think over the ca- last couple of years I've become as like, I, I love more deeply that in a sense makes me more anxious because there's more, uh, at risk or uh, more that could be threatened, that, yeah. that could be uh, attacked, right? And so some people would say that all anxiety is evidence of like lack of faith or whatever. And I would say actually the absence of anxiety is absence of evidence of lack of love. Mm. And yeah, it's more apathy or yeah disinterest. And, and so this has been kind of a personal process, but then also I just uh, like from my coworkers to my family members, there's like this tendency in evangelical culture to, apologize for being emotional to backtrack to withdraw and then re-engage what well, well, i love in the, in light of our last conversation about masculinity right and we finished in masculinity if you didn't listen to it it's to me it was really really interesting to hear you talk about that seth but you know we finished talking about the holy aggression that men are supposed to have and it's it's wild to me going from a conversation about that to a conversation about the goodness of emotions yeah and um, and so it seems like part of the holiness of that holy aggression is is thinking through what does it mean to have a good relationship with our emotions. Yeah, it's just like so. Take masculinity as an example. Because men have twenty x ish higher testosterone than women in general, there's a greater proclivity and capacity towards aggression, which can be used for all types of good. And so that's what we talked about last time. Um, there's also like the the more feminine hormones like um, estrogen and um, progesterone and and like the various like forms of that that uh like facilitate production of oxytocin and even um lead to like greater feelings of bonding Mm. yeah and so like those those hormones do occur more often in females and so females do tend to again we're talking about not distinctions of kind but distinctions of degree females tend to love more deeply which does mean that they tend to be affected emotionally in a with a greater capacity. Mm-hmm. And so there is, uh, I love even you describing though, that, that as greater capacity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know? it's not that women are emotional. Men are rational. So I think women have a greater capacity for emotions, which are good. Yeah. Right? Like, I, if well, but you could even describe it as a stronger tendency, but like, no, it's actually, it's a capacity. It, it can be a very good thing. 
Yes. And to have a high capacity of a good thing is a good thing. Yeah. And like I was joking with someone about my, you know, my, my kids, it's like when I want their affection, they're cuddling me. When I don't want their affection, they're being clingy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're doing the same thing. It's yeah. just my yeah. kind of disposition at the moment that interprets it as, oh, she's being clingy or, oh, she's being cuddly, you know, cuddly being the positive, clingy being the right. negative, sure. just to be clear. And so there is something on this discussion on emotionality that I think men in general ought to look to women in general and see a greater capacity for this connectedness, affectedness, uh, concern-based loving affection that leads to a variety of depths and emotions. And so there is kind of this stereotype, which is generally true because this is where our stereotypes tend to come from, that like when it comes to emotions, you know, women are painting with oil paints and men are painting with watercolors or crayons, <laughs> you know, like there's just, yeah. there's less complexity, less, less depth, less beauty. And again, that's not true for all men. Like you read like the Russian authors, Dostoevsky, you know, and here's like this, this guy with a tremendous colored palette, right? Uh, so these are trends, tendencies. Um, but I do think women in general have a great capacity. And just like there probably is a sense in which a lot of ladies could look to uh, men in general at about like, hey, I can have hard conflict conversations and lean in and cause conflict and do that appropriately and well. Men should also look to women as a generally positive examples of emotionality, loving, affection, connectedness, like tribalism in the best sense, like affection for my people, hmm. you know, like uh, the, that kind of connectedness to those who are proximate or... So, yeah. so I think there are, are some trends here on the masculine femininity thing that are, are worth observing, but I think it is a greater capacity yeah. at, at a basic level. Well, if what these conversations are is critiquing the hell out of the culture around us and within us, then the hellish part we're critiquing is seeing emotions as inherently and exclusively bad. Um, we pro probably will talk about some of the dangers related to emotions, but, um, but if we think about what would it look like to cultivate emotions in a heavenly place, you already mentioned Jesus. It seems like that would be a great, great place to start, right? If you go like, yeah. what's, the, what's the truest picture of humanity look like? It's Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and and this is a, a great observation. Like even our discussion of masculinity, like the the first ninety percent of it, it's about what we have common in our humanity. And uh, so, not getting. I want to come to Christ here in a second, but I think about even like the term hysterical. You know, uh, someone's being hysterical. You're describing them as being like annoyingly emotional, yeah. or problematically emotional. But if you think about like when someone has their uterus removed. It's a hysterectomy. And so like hysterical is saying like your uterus is making you crazy. Hmm. Like, and so there's even like latent sexism in our approach to big emotions. Like, oh, that's you being hysterical, right? That's yeah. like the, the etymology of the term wow. is saying like, you, you, is there a full moon out? Your uterus is driving you crazy, right? And so you try to apply that more broadly and you kind of see like how deep in our language and the way we process things, how uh, problematic... Uh, even like the way that we feel about our emotions or about our emotions are. And I think that the governing emotion that shapes these conversations is shame, which is like the derivative of like what I call secondary emotions. Like I have a feelings about my feelings, I have emotions about my emotions. I'm feeling like this. I shouldn't feel that way. Oh, classic me, huge loser who feels like that. You know what I mean? So we, mm -hmm. we shame ourselves, which kind of numbs us and causes us to hide and so for a lot of us, um, low affect types or even just people who are trying to process our place in the world, 
the biggest and most controlling emotion we feel is shame because we feel like our emotions cause us to stand out. And it's if people are like grass, you know, the tallest ones get cut. Yeah. You know, and so there's just desire to not be like a field with all these different types, but to be like a lawn where everything's the same. And if our emotions cause us to stand out, we feel like exposed or at risk. And so, or we feel awkward, like we don't belong. Mm. And so that's the shame emotion of the withdrawal, contain, um, minimize. And so uh, there's a lot bringing into this conversation. Yeah, sure. I, and this is part of the reason why I feel like resolve to not use the word emotional uh, as a insult or as a dismissive term, either of myself or of other people. Yeah. And to really try to help when people apologize for being emotional, it's like, please don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, looking to Christ is the uh, the big idea here, right? That's what we're doing on this podcast. That's what we're doing as pastors. And I think recognizing that and understanding that is a uh, is a huge, big part of deal. Of this I remember being in a talk that um, Paul Miller was giving a long time ago, and he was talking about um, how there's this article written by a guy named B.B. Warfield called "The Emotional Life of Our Lord." And how nothing like it had ever been written before, and it was the best thing ever. And and B.B. Warfield was a very conservative theologian, really famous for attacking um, liberal theology, um, holding tightly to inerrancy, uh, really like maintaining his firm grasp on like systematic categories when everyone was kind of leaning away from that and doing just kind of more vague story oriented uh, narratival theology. He's like, no, categories and distinctions are helpful and true, and being okay with embracing more of that, like even modernistic approach where yeah. like there are facts and principles. And so to have a guy like this, write Something called the emotional life of our Lord. Which That's is, a really great article. We, we can link to it in the description yeah. here. It's, it's not real long. It's what maybe six to 10 pages, yeah. something like that. It's free online all over the place. So we could find a PDF and yeah. stick it up there. But, um, this is a, both my Greek class and then working through this, his article is probably the single most helpful resource besides uh, Greek Exegesis 3 at Phoenix Seminary under John Del Husay. Okay. So, uh, who's an elder at Redemption Alhambra? So, there we go. Uh, but I have a couple of quotes from I wanted to read. Um, one in terms of uh, history, one in terms of looking at the text. So, one thing he says is like, dismissing the emotionality of Jesus is, and here's where the quote begins, is derived ultimately from the ethical idea of the Stoa or the Stoics which conceived moral perfection under the blanket term of apatheia and naturally wished to attribute the ideal to Jesus as the perfect man. So this idea, uh, which is like Greek, Stoic, and in modern uh, Eastern usages, kind of this Buddhistic idea, that if we could extinguish our desire, we'll not be controlled by our emotions, and we can have this uh, separation, this pure rationality, this distinctness, um, and so what he says is this tendency may run the risk of giving us a cold and remote Jesus who we can scarcely believe is able to sympathize with us in all of our infirmities. Hmm. And so he's saying like the, at least in his timeline, this idea of like we're projecting this stoic Greek projection of ideal and being not tossed about. Uh, but this is, it's a loveless, it's an apathy, a, um, a, a, disconnectedness, a, uh, a separation, and it is not uh, rooted in actually like a studying of the text and looking at Christ. It's projecting things onto Christ that we got from Greek philosophy or Buddhist instincts. And what, what he's getting at here is um, this text in Hebrews two seventeen that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect 
that become might become merciful and faithful high priest. That this idea that if he's like us in every respect, that includes our emotionality, our physicality, and mercy is very much like a, a sense of compassion and embodiedness. Yeah. That's like your heart goes out to someone. Uh, so like his brothers in every respect, that's one of the most quoted verses in the early church was this idea that Christ is like us in every respect. He's truly God and he's truly human. And what does it mean to be truly human? And so then he, then uh, B.B. Warfield takes us to um, the text, and I'm just going to, this is kind of a long quote, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. Uh, so if, if, uh, if an emotion is uh, this a drawing of the self, this expression of desire, this uh, both like a physical and a, and a moral uh, experience, uh, it's, it's fundamentally a desire. He says this, um, it may be explicit to note that our Lord's emotions fulfill themselves as, do our, as ours do in physical reactions. He hungered. Uh, he thirsted, he was weary, he knew physical pain and pleasure. He expressed also in bodily affections the emotions that stirred his soul. He did it so sufficiently, evidenced by the simple circumstance that these emotions were observed and recorded. But the bodily expression of emotions is also frequently expressed expre- and expressly attested. Not only did we read that he wept, but he also wailed, he sighed, he groaned. We also read of angry glares of agitation of his bearing when he was under strong feelings, um, open exultation of joy, unrest of his movements in the face of anticipated evil, loud cries which wrung him from the moment of desolation. Nothing is lacking to make the impression strong that we have before us, Jesus and human being, just like ourselves. Wow, yeah. So you, you can't read the Gospels and not see emotionality in Christ. Highs, lows, affectedness. And so much of like the the stoic ideal of disaffectedness is like, I want to be in control. I want to have self-control and this assumption that I don't have self-control when something outside of me is affecting me or controlling me. And so that's where I think a big part of this plays out is people go, I don't want to have emotions because emotions feel like something outside of me is controlling me. I want to have self-control, but that can't be exactly what that means. The exhortation to have self-control because Jesus was the most self-controlled person ever. And yet He's affected emotionally by what's going on around him, that his emotional state. And so th- there's a passivity to emotions. There are the passions. They come upon you. Mm-hmm. A lot of these words, even describing Christ, are in the passive tense. He was angry. He was annoyed. He uh, was weary. Like these are, these are passive things. And so um, is it the absence of self-control when you're being emotional? At least... If we look at Christ, the answer has to be no. Yeah. I think that the self-control comes in terms of what we do with those emotions when they come across us. Yeah. And this is where I think uh, we need to begin to process through what, what do we do with our emotions then? Because I don't think anybody thinks that being ruled or governed by or being mastered by emotional states is the great way forward. Sure. So, so I think looking at Christ is the is the big and central to here. There's a couple other theologians that I think are important on this. Um, John Frame says, oh, "We've seen that God not o- only has an atemporal and spatial transcendent existence. So we talk about we've talked about this a bunch before his transcendence, his sense of being over history as author. But Frame also goes on to say, this is in his book Doctrine of God, um, but also eminence at times and spaces from these eminent perspectives." God views each event from within history. As he does, he evaluates each event appropriately. 
when it happens. Such events are, such evaluations are in the most obvious sense responses with emotions. Uh, so now we're getting the sense of like, what is an emotion? And there's this really great book by a guy named Robert Roberts, which is <laughs> an unfortunate name at a minimum, where, he, where he's defining emotions as, uh, let me see this here, concern-based construals. Okay. Which I think is the best, shortest definition of an emotion that... So uh, a construal would be what? Yeah. A construal is an interpretation or a okay. perspective. So if I'm construing something, I'm interpreting or noticing a perspective on. Okay. So and so his definition was what again? Concern-based construals. Okay. So it's basically saying you're going to interpret reality based off of certain concerns. Yeah. That. And that's what emotions are yes, in so his definition? So emotions are concern-based construals. So there's two aspects. Okay. Um, there's concern-based which I think, if you think about concern as care, regard for, I would I would boil his down emotion down to like emotions are always revealing us two things: one, what we love, or what we care about, or what we're concerned about, what we value. So that's bucket one. Yeah, that emotions are rooted in a system of ordering loves. Mm-hmm. Like every person has some way in which they shape and order their values and their affections and their loves. Without exception, we're always doing that. That's Augustinian. Um, so there's that. Um, we we have love in bucket one. Number two is how I'm interpreting the current moment, how I'm making sense of things, how I'm construing the story, and uh, how I'm telling the story, how I'm experiencing the story, right? So you walk in front of me at the gym. I can interpret that as he was busy in a hurry. I can interpret that as he doesn't respect me. I can interpret that as maybe he's preoccupied, I can interpret that as nothing. Sure. You know, like I can maybe not even notice because I was absent minded. Right. So so in within an emotion, there's almost always two things happening at the same time. There's this revelation of my concerns, what I care about, what I love, and there's this revelation of how I'm interpreting what's going on right now. Like this is like the whole like who controls the narrative yeah. stuff. And so the only person who's ever had perfectly and rightly ordered loves is Christ. Yep. And the only person who's ever perfectly interpreted all situations is Christ. So there's only one person who's ever had emotions that are perfectly revealing what's going on. And so, so I think we first have to understand that our emotions are revelations of our reality. So they're not revelations of reality, like everything that's outside of us but they are revelations of my reality. They are revealing to me what I care about and how it's being uh, threatened or approved of or disapproved of. So hold on real fast, just because that sort of sounds like a thing a lot of people say all the time, which I think is dumb, which is, well, hey, man, just live your truth, you know, that kind of thing. So like, when I hear you say, like, it doesn't describe reality, but it describes your reality, that sounds a little bit like saying it's not the truth, but it is your truth. So is, are you saying the same thing? Well, so I, I think that that phrase could make sense in one sense, in another sense, be the dumbest thing ever. So okay. when I say I have to live my truth, what I'm saying is either there is no truth, we only have our subjective reality, so who's thinking cares, just do what you want. Yeah. So that's one way of interpreting that phrase. The dumb part. The that's dumb, the dumb way. To be clear, that's the dumb way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The other way of saying is like, all I have is my subjective experience of reality. 
and yeah. I, I have to act in light of my subjective experience of reality. Right. My reality and my experience of reality is not reality, but I can't act any other way besides as me. Sure. I don't have Luke Simmons' subjective experience of reality. I have my subjective. Like, so yeah. one says that, like, so in the Greek, too, reality and truth are the same words, just to right. different depending on context. So I'm going to use the word truth and reality interchangeably. interchangeably. Yeah. So if truth and reality, if there is a real reality, a total capital T truth outside of us, all we have as individuals is our subjective experience of that. And so I can know uh, with a much higher degree of certainty how I'm perceiving and interpreting reality than I can actually what reality is. Mm-hmm. And so when I say that... But even the way you're describing that assumes, I think, a level of humility that seems important. Yes, I'm very humble. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like if if I assume that because it's how I'm experiencing reality, it is reality. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, so, probably wrong. Yeah, so when I'm having... Of an experience of overwhelming emotions or heightened emotions or something like either like positive, like joyful, rejoicing ones or negative, uh, painful ones, like the pleasant or unpleasant emotions. Um, those are revealing to me something about what I love and something about how I'm interpreting what's going on. Yeah. And this is like, I think the next phase of this is that we ought to um, interrogate and interpret and be curious towards our emotions, not just be tossed by them, submit to them, treat them as final say. Yeah. Right. So there are certainly times when I'm happy about something that when I interpret that happiness, it's because I love the wrong things. You know, I'm someone fails a rep in a workout and I'm like, nice. <laughs> yeah, sure. Glad that guy's screwed up. Right. And I'm happy. Well, it's why it's because, what I love is some egotistical sense of being better than that guy. Yeah. And it makes me happy when I'm doing better than him. So that, that would be like the emotion itself is not sinful, but the emotion reveals a disordered love structure that I'm now considering myself more significant than others. And I'm no longer able to rejoice with those who rejoice because I'm having like my egotistical pity party over here about how I got second place, not first place. Yeah, And so I don't think that emotions can be sinful, but emotions can reveal sinfulness. Yeah. How important is it to be able to name the emotions, right? If, if emotions are revelatory, I just think there's a lot of people who like go, I don't know, like, how, how are you feeling? Hey, describe your emotion, then go, bad? <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. How important is it to be able to, instead of say bad to say i feel uh grieved versus i feel embarrassed versus i feel anxious versus i feel um sad versus i feel confused you know like how, how important is it to be able to actually drill down versus just going oh good bad yeah <laughs> you know yeah i think it's kind of like drawing a picture with only a sharpie marker versus painting a picture with you know, an oil palette that's complex and refined is if you're trying to become self-aware as you inhabit the world that God has made and to live faithfully in that, there's layers to that reality. And so I know a lot of folks who've gone to therapy, gone to counseling, and like the practice is given to them. It starts with like having, uh, you know, I was talking to one of the lead pastors of Redemption who's talking about how like 
he was having a feeling emotional in a way kind of almost cut off, like having a hard time giving language to his emotions. And he went and grabbed his daughter's emotion wheel. Yeah. That, that had been helping her like add language to what's going on. And he's like, I've found it helpful to name those things. I also think that naming reality is part of what makes us distinctly human. Hmm. That the task that God gives to Adam and Eve is to name, yeah. or the task he gives to Adam is to name the animals. And so, when it does seem sometimes like na- being able to name something, it loses some of its power over you. Yes, yeah, because what happens is you go from being overwhelmed and you're not sure why to be able to saying, "I'm nauseous. I feel overexposed. I feel betrayed." I and you kind of go like, so there's something about like getting clear headed has to do with like finding the appropriate and right label for something. Mm. And cause that also is a way of asserting even like our human authority to subdue and have dominion over even ourselves. So I do think that part of the discovery of self-control is being able to name how we are feeling. Well, it's interesting about that. Cause I think some, I mean, some people, a lot, probably a lot of people who can't really name their emotions, they just can't like, they just haven't developed that ability yet. Other people can't, and they don't want to, because they would go, well, I don't want to let those emotions have control over me. So I'm not going to do the work to try to name them. The irony is actually in doing the work to try to name it helps you have a little bit more control over your emotions. Yes. So yeah. I, there's kind of an interesting irony there. The people that don't want to be run by emotions end up being run by emotions based on their inability to identify their emotions. Yeah. It's, it's avoiding diagnosis. Yeah. Right. Like there's like this, well, you don't know can't hurt you thing. It's like, well, that's just yeah. not true. Right. Uh, so I think being able to drill down and ask that question, like, what is this? Like, I'm having an experience of heightened or something emotions, right? Uh, what do I love that's being praised or approved of or what I love that's being threatened? Or how's this, like, revealing to me something about what I care about or what I value? And then also how's this affecting how I'm interpreting the situation? And so there's both, like, so, like I said, emotions don't, aren't sin, but they can reveal sinful, uh, like mi- disorder or loves or mm-hmm. priorities or values. Um, so like even when the, like the Bible talks about how the Lord does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. Yeah. If I find myself rejoicing in the death of the wicked, I, the answer is not just to like stop rejoicing, but to drill down on my smug self-righteousness and how I feel like I'm better than that guy in, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I have to address like the loves, um, but then also address the interpretation. Like my interpretation is I deserve heaven. That guy deserves hell. When reality is like, I also deserve hell. And so there, but by the grace of God go I. So I'm misinterpreting this. That's why I'm rejoicing at the death of the wicked rather than being grieved at the fact that mm. even wicked people die. So, so rather than like rebuking or trying to contain the emotion, the answer is to drill down on what interpretation or construal is it revealing about how I'm telling the story um, or also what is it revealing about what I love and is how it's ordered or disordered. What about when you can't really sort it out? Like you're going, hey, I'm trying to figure out this thing or I've noticed this, but I I don't know how to figure it out. Like like I had a thing just to, to be uh, candid or vulnerable or something here. I, you know, I realized the other day that I rarely cry over things that are truly sad. I but I but I cry a lot over things that are uh, sentimental to me, in some way, right? Certain songs will make me cry, or I'll watch a video of a dad and his kid, and that'll make me cry. 
but then I'll see like really, or I'll hear about really horrific suffering and it won't move me to tears. I'll feel bad internally. Like I don't, I feel sad about it, but it doesn't lead to crying. And so I've been going, what does that mean? Like, and I don't, and, and maybe my initial question is even to judge it as bad. I don't know that that's bad. Maybe it is. Maybe it's, you know, but I, I, I start to go, huh, okay, here's this thing I noticed about my emotions, the way I process them, and the way they come out. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> like, yeah. who, okay, now what? You know, so step one, I guess, notice it. That's good. But then, like, okay, I'm trying to interrogate it, um, and I don't feel like I have the the skill to do it well. Yeah. Well, I think that noticing it in naming the dynamic is phase one. Uh, phase two is doing what you can to resist the urge to shame or decide whether it's good or bad, right? It's just what is, Yeah. right? Is 80 degrees good or bad? It's like, well, what are you trying to do? Trying to, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Trying to go skiing? Bad. You're trying to, you know, put your feet in the pool? Not bad. You're trying to get in the pool up your neck? That's going to be cold. You know what I mean? So, so I think trying to resist labeling what is as good or bad but then asking the question, like, if there, you do feel like there's incongruity between, like, your ability to cry, then it's, like, talking that through with people who, like, really know you mm-hmm. and asking those questions. Like, have you ever noticed this, too? Like, when's the last time you saw me, like, really cry or something that was, like, really sad? Mm-hmm. Versus, um, like, I, I, you went there, so I'll go there, like, I have noticed that you, you cry pretty easily when talking about your kids, parenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, like memories with your kids, mm-hmm. those types of things. But you tend to jump to uh, maybe like so what or leadership or mm-hmm. uh, theologizing when like something truly bad's happening. I've also not seen something like truly sad happen to you personally. Like I don't think I've processed through a death in your family with you. Right. Right. So some of it might be distance. Some of it might be closeness. Uh, but like, yeah, and I can think of times when I a really sad thing led me to cry, right? Yeah. But it's just not it's not as readily there, you know. Yeah. It's not as on the surface ready to come out. Yeah. So as as your friend, I say, well, let's keep watching that together. Yeah. Should we explore all of it in public on this podcast? <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean, part I don't. I mean, I don't mind talking about it. Well, you can part use me as a case study. Well, part of it is I don't think we can all we can do that in one. Sure. In one shot. Like, I think we, you can go like, hey, I've noticed this about myself. And I can mm-hmm. say, I've noticed some of that too. And you can go, I'm not sure it's a problem. And I'm going, I'm not sure it is either. And it's like, well, let's be mindful of that. And when I notice more, you notice more, let's talk about it again. Mm-hmm. And like, that's, this is like part of like the developing of emotional health is the walking it out over time in relationships. Right? Like yeah. there's. Well, what is hard about it? And I mean, just to continue on the phone, you know is I'm in a position as a pastor where people will share with me really painful, sad things. Yeah. And I sometimes think that my lack of tears communicates a lack of care yeah. to them. And so I, I have to interrogate, is it? Does it? You know? Um, like maybe there's something to that. And maybe there's not. But I now feel like a, there's now expectation also around certain emotions. Right, yeah. like there's emotions that you just have to interrogate because you're experiencing them yourself, and then there are emotions that you do or don't have in right or wrong settings. Yeah, that feel 
congruent or incongruent, you know, proportionate or disproportionate to what's happening. Right. And there is anyway, so it's all, it all feels like part of what makes this such a complex thing to sort through. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't speak for everybody's experience of you, but I know like last summer when my grandma passed, I was much more weepy than you were. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember your general presence, your kind of heaviness of spirit around me, your willingness to give me space to ask how you're doing, how you're processing, you know, to put a hand on your shoulder and pray slowly. And I, I didn't interpret your lack of literal tears to be the absence of care. Other people might have interpreted that way. Yeah. Um, so I think it's worth asking about. Yeah. But I think drilling down on that, like especially if people in leadership, sometimes like the inability to go to tears is this like, for me, this need to be perceived as clear-headed leader, uh, the, the felt need to, I want to be strong for those who weep rather than weep with those who weep. There's no biblical command to be strong for those who are weeping. Mm, yeah. Wow. You know, there's just a command to weep. So sure. it's like, I'm here as a pastor to help you feel stable and I'm here to help you, uh, understand biblically, mm-hmm. you know, there's no like theologize for those who weep. There's no, <laughs> sure. there's no defend God's sovereignty and goodness to those who weep. It's weep with those who weep. And so, so trying to like drill down on, am I kind of maintaining a, an austerity or a, a picture of togetherness mm-hmm. or of being over as pastor rather than with yeah. you know, like the exhortation to pastors in first Peter five to shepherd the flock of God that's among you. There's like this among the sheepness mm-hmm. rather than like an above the sheepness thing. Mm-hmm. And so, so sometimes that can reveal, like I remember also remember that when Jay was, not sleeping at all. I mean, not as much as I wanted him to. He was sleeping <laughs> somewhat, you know. Yeah. Sitting with people who are having a very hard time and like just my nervous system and body was like out of gas. And so it wasn't necessarily revealing what I loved as much as it was revealing what I didn't have, which was <laughs> sleep. Yeah, energy. Yeah, and I like so we need to understand how even just like physicality and hormones and nervous systems are, are factors in that. But I think recognizing that there's this, like here's the baseline reality here is that God is love. Humans are made in the image of that God and therefore we ought to be emotional. Mm, Sure. And that's why there's this whole like how to interrogate, how to be emotionally healthy, how to, how to, how to, which I think is a big deal. But in a greater sense, it's just like if we just did one thing, which was not, describe in shameful terms emotionality it'd be a lot easier to be curious and to interrogate our emotions yeah that's true to talk about it with people and to say like hey i've noticed that i get really anxious when i'm walking towards your office hey i've noticed that when i come to when i when i get a message from you my blood pressure feels like it boop goes up eight points you know and Mm -hmm. i've noticed how like i went to the doctor the other week and my blood pressure was high and he's like do you always have high blood pressure do you always have high blood pressure it's like just when i'm coming to see you you know like you know and there's (laughs) right yeah i'm in the dentist you know they took my blood pressure which i don't know why they needed my blood pressure at the dentist but like i don't know do you have high blood pressure just when i'm no i'm about to be shamed for not flossing you know (laughs) just when i preemptively feel lesser than i start to yeah and I think if rather than shaming ourselves when we had emotions, we were able to be curious and even like hospitable with ourselves, like welcoming our whole selves and not trying to leave some parts of us at the door, 
we'd be like, that would be the step one on being emotionally healthy is the ability to be curious, not shamey when we're talking about our emotions with ourselves and with other people. Mm. And I feel like most of the time when people uh, even are talking about someone who's like judgmental or legalistic, they're somehow describing some of that like subtext of like shaminess. Mm. Yeah. Like rarely are they describing someone who like is teaching that you have to do good things to go to heaven. Usually they're describing someone who there's kind of this undercurrent of uh, hierarchy of shamefulness based on someone's perception of being not good enough or something. Yeah. And so that that's that's why that resolution is there. I'm resolved to not use the word emotional pejoratively or dismissively or as an insult. Because I think if we just rediscovered emotionality as a good thing and received our emotions as part of being human and in the image of God and more specifically being human in the way after Christ, uh, all this interrogating and talking for emotions would make sense. And, and I think like there's, there's even a lot of songs that we sing within Christian culture. Like I won't be formed by feelings, but I'll hold fast to what is true. Hmm. And there's a way of interpreting that, that I agree with and a way of interpreting that, that I think is a huge problem. Hmm. Okay. You know, like if by won't be formed by feelings, what we mean is, um, like even the opposition, I won't be formed by feelings, but instead I'll hold fast to what is true. So a way of interpreting that that is false is my, I won't follow my heart instead of cling to theology. Like, well, what happened to like the greatest commandment is love. Mm, like sure. that, like that, like I yeah. actually have to be formed by some feelings if I'm going to be even a notch close to truthfulness. Right. Right. Like it's actually my affection for Christ that forms my entire vision for my life. And so what, what what I think they're getting at is I won't be tossed about by my emotional state. Rather, I'll, I'll cling to the good news of Christ risen on my behalf. Like, and so it's like I don't want emotions to be my master. I don't want to be a slave to um, my emotionality. But at the same time, like everybody is being formed by feelings all the time in the sense that like what is formative, what I love, and how I'm interpreting the world, like those two things, yeah, like – the reason we read the Bible is because we're constantly trying to reinterpret the world congruent with what the Bible is saying is true about the world. So we're constantly trying to like, is my interpretation of reality matching with scripture? Uh, yeah. And when it is, then I have emotions that are congruent with the authors of the scriptures, namely the Holy spirit. Yeah. And when I'm loving things correctly, then I'm being properly formed by right ordered affections. And so, so I think, um, won't be formed by feelings like what we're we're functionally trying to say is um, when I have doubts, I won't take them to the bank and cash them in. Yeah. You know, which is fine, which is great. Rather, uh, I want us to say like uh, in in a, in a, there's a different way in which it's okay to be formed by feelings. If we don't mean by that, we want to be mastered by them. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. Because part of holding fast to what's true is going to be discerned in part through your emotional experience. Yeah. Yeah. That my, my emotions are always telling me true things about me. Right. Not about the whole world, but about me. Yeah. And sometimes it's telling me good things about me. Sometimes they're telling me bad things about me. Mm-hmm. Like you love the wrong things and you're believing the worst. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's our discussion about emotions. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for, uh, thanks for thinking about that. And, uh, yeah, I guess we'll have to keep, uh, after we hit, you know, stop on this. We'll keep this conversation with you and me, try to get to the bottom of some of that stuff. 
And uh, yeah, it's a good conversation. So thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for going there. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 